Check us out at westchestercfc.com. Westchestercfc.com. Acts chapter 17 and in verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing how the city was full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. And some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. And then they say in verse 20, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. And so we see the Apostle Paul come into the very capital of Greece and he comes into Athens. He, he is fleeing from, from a, another city called Berea. And he has a couple of days or, or a week and he is walking up and down the streets of Athens. Athens, as we know in this ancient world, was the very mecca in the world of philosophy and in the world of arts and in architecture, but, but especially Athens was the epicenter of religious exuberance. If you read a number of historians who had lived in Athens in these times, what they write is that the Athenians greatly surpassed all others in their zeal for religion. Or another one says that on every side of the city there are altars and temples and festivals. And most memorably, another historian who had lived in Athens had said, as a humorous note to all the people living there, that, that in Athens it is easier to find a god than it is to find a person. And so last week we began a series called Keep Christianity Strange. And we had started hearing about our strange king, Christ Jesus. A king that is so strange and so, so unique and peculiar that he is a one-of-one one kind of king. And, and it's only a fitting thing that this one-of-one one king also has a very strange message which is a one-of-one one message in all the world. And so what we see in our text immediately here this morning is that whether it is first century Greece or 21st century America and in Pennsylvania, wherever Jesus' Christ's gospel is proclaimed, especially in a secular world, it is, it is very strange news to those who have not yet heard it. The good news of, of great joy of Jesus Christ, it begins as odd news of mysterious wonder, of mysterious weirdness to all of those who have yet to experience Jesus. And so here we find Paul in Athens waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens. 
And so he does something very wise. He just walks up and down in those streets and he's watching very carefully. He's getting a pulse of the city and, and what she believes in. He goes into the marketplace and he listens very carefully to all of the chatter that is, is happening in the streets. And very soon he begins to dip his toe in conversations with the locals of his own. And it's then when he begins speaking about a name called Jesus that they had never heard before. And since this is a city that had such a fascination with, with learning and with wisdom, what a lot of them say is, is that we have to bring you to our, our philosophers. And there are a couple of schools of philosophy mentioned here in the text. As we saw, first of all, there is a school of thought called the Epicureans. Now, what the Epicureans had believed is that life is all about indulging in all of your, your um, pleasures. How, in other words, whatever makes you happy, whatever brings you, you joy in the world, do it to its, its fulfillment. No matter what it is, do it in excess. And yet the Epicureans also had believed all of these idols that they had been worshiping what their attitude was and what their, or rather what their understanding was is that our gods are to be venerated. They are to be mired and they are to be amazed by. And yet you couldn't get too close to their gods. They were oblivious to their everyday lives. And as we all understand, it's because they were lifeless blocks of wood mainly. And yet in their understanding, all that they ever knew in this um, Athenian world, was that our gods are so magnificent and so all-powerful that they are unapproachable. In other words, we are not worthy to come into their, their um, um, company or into their presence. And so really the only reason why they had existed was to worship all of these gods. And that's where it started and that's where it ended. And so those were the Epicureans. And yet the Stoics, on the other hand, were the exact opposite of the Epicureans. What the Stoics had believed is that life is all about suppressing our emotions and just going through life joyless, having a poker face in the midst of our adversities. What their attitude was about gods is that if there were one all-powerful God, then he would be no, no greater than we ourselves. Because after all, look at all of the buildings which we have made for our gods. And yet mainly, though, what, what Stoics have been known for is trying to find what their place was in the order of the universe, whatever that meant. You know? And so here comes Paul, though. He, as he comes into the city and he begins speaking news to them that they had never heard before. A little bit later on, he, he stands up on Mars Hill, which was one of the, the foremost places in the known world in this time. And what he says, mainly to um, Stoic ears especially in verse 24, he says that the God who made the world and all of the things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, 
since he himself gives to all people breath and life and all things. And he has made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having predetermined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. What Paul is saying to them is that here is where you and I fall in the order of of this earth and of this universe. In other words, what he's saying is that you have a purpose in this world, that you are exactly where God wanted you to be. And that life is only found through Jesus Christ. And then he also mainly addresses the Epicureans, verses 27 and 28, as he says that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and we move and we exist. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children. And so what he's saying to them in so many other words is that I know that you have only known lifeless blocks of wood you call gods who are very unapproachable and impersonal in your lives. And yet I am bringing you news of great joy of a God, of a Lord Jesus Christ, who not just has created this this world, but he created you. And he knows you, and he loves you, and he cares about you. He wants to live in fellowship with you. And I mean, as you might imagine, this was the very first time that most of these people had ever heard anything about Jesus. His name was was a very foreign-sounding name in their ears. Everything that he is, is, is proclaiming about Jesus are are just nothing but foreign concepts to them. This is unlike anything that their um, own philosophers had ever proclaimed to them before. And so understandably, what we hear them them saying earlier on in the text is they refer to um, Paul, or rather what they say is that he is proclaiming a strange deities. Notice deities there. It is likely that as as Paul speaks about Jesus and his resurrection, a lot of people may have misunderstood that that as he says resurrection, what they heard is that the resurrection is a goddess who is presiding over the afterlife. And he's like, oh, no, no, no. Jesus Christ is the one God, and he was dead, but, but now he is risen from his grave. When Amanda and I lived in China, this is something that we experienced all the time. And I was amazed, at, as I had discovered, that many of the people who we would speak about Jesus to, what many of them had, had been taught is that Jesus was, was um, a folk story that was invented by um, Americans in the early um, 1900s or, or in the 1920s. He was like, like um, Old Mother Hubbard and Humpty Dumpty to them. And yet, really the most exciting thing that I had ever experienced in my life was was seeing a spark of discovery in their eyes as they learned, wait, Jesus was a real person? Jesus actually lived? Jesus died for me? And it was very strange news as they first heard it. Well, also when we lived in China, I'll never forget how a man and I went up 
high up into the mountains in these very small cities and villages of China, close to um, um, a Tibetan border. And we walked into cities that were so small that we were being looked at by the locals as if they had never seen a white North American person before. And we walked inside a Buddhist um, um, a monastery one, one um, afternoon. And we see all of these gods in the Buddhist religion, all of these huge blocks of, of wood and of idols. And it was in a region that had a lot of earthquakes. And even though I, I'm a minister, on that afternoon, it was Amanda who was amazing me. <laughs> She's walking with, with um, a guy who had worked inside, inside that, that um, um, monastery. And she asked him a question that has there ever been an earthquake that has, has caused um, any harm or damage to these gods? And he said, well, as a matter of fact, we just had an earthquake about four years ago. And it destroyed many of our gods. And Amanda looks at him and says, so your gods can be broken and destroyed. And he just kind of paused and scratched his head and said, well, well, yes. When there's an earthquake, our gods can be destroyed, but we just make, make a brand new one afterwards. And it was an opportunity for her and I to speak about a living God who, who is not made by human hands. And yet, understandably, it was a very strange thing for, for him to have heard about, though. And so it's very strange news to those who have not heard it. But, but really, the beautiful thing about this, this good news of great joy, though, is that it is even strange news to those who have heard it. And I would say that it is strange news, especially to those who have heard it for, for their whole entire lives. As we noticed earlier on in our text this morning, Paul begins and he goes into a synagogue, which was there in, in Athens. It is believed that these, these were Jewish proselytes. And so these are people who likely only knew of the law of Moses. They um, had no concept of Jesus Christ being God's Messiah. And yet Paul recognizes this is a tremendous opportunity because they have a foundation of the law and the prophets. I mean, Paul knew this frontwards and backwards, and so it was an opportunity saying that, that all of you, you guys are looking for the Messiah. I'm here to tell you that, that he was already here. His name is Jesus. And it was a very strange and a beautiful discovery for them, I imagine. It's what we see on the Sermon on the Mount, really, because as Jesus comes into the world, really, it's the exact same thing. All of these people who have a foundation of the law and the prophets. And then we hear Jesus say that, that you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder or commit adultery, or swear falsely. And then over and over again, what does he say? But I say to you, that if you're even angry with your brother, you have already, um, how you're already guilty of murder in your hearts. If you even look at a woman lustfully, you have already committed adultery with her in your hearts. And it was a very strange um, a discovery as they heard his news. And one of the things that I most anticipate every morning that I wake up is 
all of the scriptures that, that I've read my, my whole entire life, scriptures that I once had, had believed that we as a church had completely mastered long ago in my life. And yet as I look closer into that text and I dig deeper into it, slowly but surely all of these vivid explosions of light and color and substance and beauty begin unfolding in my soul. And it's happening for the very first time that I'm noticing certain glimpses in the Word of God. Verses I have read my whole entire life. And I think it is is a strange discovery for us as we mature as Christians. Where it begins and it's like, yes, God is to be venerated. God is to be admired and, and for us to be amazed by. And yet early on... And our understanding, maybe where we had been at was, but you can't get too close to God. All those years, Jewish people could only get as close to the most holy place. We can only get so close to God as as the stained glass windows that he lives in. That yes, he is an all-powerful, all-magnificent God, but he... You know, he's just a little too preoccupied to listen to my prayers at night. He can't be bothered by my everyday life because he's so magnificent. And yet as we we go even further on with Jesus, though, all of these strange discoveries that we make, where it's like, wait a minute, are you telling me that how this all-powerful God even knows everything that I'm going to pray before I pray it, and he still wants me to say it to him. That he, he desires for me of all people to draw near to him. That he cares about me and what's going on in my life right now. I mean, are you telling me that, that when he said, cast all of your, your heavy burdens upon me, That he wasn't just saying that to the people in the Bible, but he's also saying that to us. I think a lot of people arrive at a discovery that, wait a minute, are are you really saying that that I I no longer have to to try to earn a flat in heaven by, by trying to be flawlessly perfect? Or that, are you telling me that this really isn't about church attendance or about what we're wearing? But rather, what this is about is loving God and our fellow men with all of our souls and looking upon the oppressed of our society with compassion in a way that is promoting justice for them. Are you telling me that when Jesus says, in my Father's house, there there are many mansions, that he isn't saying that we should just wait around and to wait around until we, we have died so that one day we can go to heaven. But rather, what he is actually saying is that we are his mansions who bring glimpses of heaven down to earth in the people who we meet. I mean, these are strange discoveries that we make that were hidden in plain sight. You know, these are just... I would say Mars Hill moments that we have again and again and again, that God, you are bringing some strange things to my ears today. And 
And a lot of you probably remember how in the late 1950s, there were some strange sounds that had never been heard before. Where for the longest time, most of what music sounded like was, was Lawrence Welk and Glenn Miller and Perry Como. And that's all it sounded like, it seemed like. And then all of a sudden, then in the late 1950s, something called rock and roll began to develop. And I laughed so hard last night as I heard a clip of a minister in the early 1960s who, who was preaching against rock and roll. And I'm going to try to use my, my um, minister um, voice for this as, as he said that these guys come down from New York City and from Europe with their long hair and their wild jungle music. And when they sing it, you can just feel the evil feeling in your heart as they play their wicked jungle music. I ask teenagers in the world today, why do you like the rock and roll music? And what they say is, it's the beat, it's the beat, it's the beat. And then he said, this is the devil's music. And the music that he was referring to, that he was calling satanic, it was Buddy Holly, Elvis Presley, and the Beatles. I mean, you go back and you play back, that'll be the day that I die now. You listen to Love Me Tender and Jailhouse Rock and Yesterday Now, and it sounds so gentle now. It sounds so ordinary to our ears now. It's playing in every nursing home in the country of today. But at the time, this was the strangest most oddest, peculiar noise pollution that a lot of people ever heard in those years. And I think in a lot of ways, as we hear strange news that we have never heard before out of the Word of God, it begins as very strange to our ears, doesn't it? And yet, even though it is strange news for, for all of those who have ears and hearts with which to receive it, it is also the most beautiful sound on the face of the earth. And yet, you know, in order for it to be the most beautiful sound on earth, though, it's got to be proclaimed this good news of great joy. Now, as we saw in verse 16 in our text, as Paul enters into Athens, it says that his spirit is greatly provoked within him as he sees all of the idols that were in Athens. Now, a time that I experienced an emotion like this was when we went to Embato, Ecuador, in South America. And we came out of our hotel, and we walked down an alley. And we saw um, a poverty that was so grotesque, so breathtaking, that my knees literally lost all of their strength, and I just had dropped and my eyes instantly began drowning in my own tears as I saw that kind of, of um, impoverishment in Ecuador. And I think what this means is that just like that, as Paul witnesses all of these shrines and these large um, houses of worship for all these lifeless gods, as Paul looks at this, it is breaking his heart. And yet notice, though, how he responds to this, though. Paul does not lash out at the Athenians. 
He does not condemn them all to hell or call them names, but, but rather what he does is as he looks at them, he sees them through the eyes of Jesus Christ. He gives them good news of great joy. And I think that he remembers who he used to be, and it's almost as if, as Paul is speaking to them on Mars Hill, it's as if he has an audience with Saul of Tarsus. And yet, more than anything, what he does, though, is that he notices glimpses of truth that are already at work within their, their lives and in their hearts. And he affirms it to them. Notice how in verse 22, where he begins with them is he says that, he says, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all aspects. He affirms what he sees in them. He says, for while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. And so therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Then in verse 29, he calls them all to action. And he says, being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the thought of men. But therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from, from the dead. So what you are, are worshiping that, that has no name, actually he has a name, and his name is Jesus Christ. And I mean, in so many ways, this is how we need to enter every conversation that we have with anybody regarding Jesus. And that's because this is why the good news is called the good news. For all of those who have ears with which to hear, what it then becomes as the mystery is then revealed to them as they now understand it a little bit, is that I have done unspeakable things in my life. And yet now, the blood of Jesus is powerful to, to, to wash all of those mistakes away. I have said unforgivable things, and yet his love is greater, and I am now forgiven. That I have failed God over and over and over again, but his grace reaches even me. And now I've got eternal joy, eternal life, and eternal peace. Yes, this really is the most beautiful sound in all of the world, this good news of great joy. And yet lastly, what we see, though, this morning is that we just have to prepare ourselves, though. And that's because strange news comes from strange messengers. As Paul is speaking to the Athenians, what, what a lot of them refer to him as is an idol, um, a babbler is what they call him. <laughs> He's an idle babbler. And even after he gives his, his historic sermon on Mars Hill, notice that, that there are no mass baptisms on this day. But rather it says in verse 32 that, that now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer at Paul. They began laughing at him. 
Where it's like they've been hanging on his every word as he's speaking about Jesus all this time, but he gets to the resurrection from um, his grave. And it's like, all right, this just got a little too strange for, for us. I mean, it was completely outlandish to their ears. All of their heroes had long since died and had gone away. And as he speaks about Jesus raising from his own grave, everybody's like, oh, oh, yeah, sure. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's not strange at all. And it, Paul also writes in another place, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And he says, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, he says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And yet for all of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In other words, those who have ears to hear, it is God's holy power. See, this is very significant because if even the Apostle Paul was occasionally a laughingstock of those who rejected Christ, if even Jesus' own relatives on occasion said that he's out of his mind as he taught the people, if we will ever dare share this good news of great joy with other people, we should just prepare ourselves. There will be objection to it. There will be laughter coming at our expense. There will be resistance which is directed at us, where we will also be seen as strange and foolish babblers of even a stranger message as we share it with them. We might hear things like, well, how could Jesus save my life when he couldn't even save his own life on the cross? You might be speaking to an atheist, and, and they might begin insulting your, your intelligence, calling you an idiot, saying that, yeah, you can, you can have your imaginary friend who lives in the clouds. You know, I don't need your cosmic boyfriend who lives in outer space. It's like, no thanks, I don't need that. Strange messages come from strange messengers. And yet, though, having said that, though, that is not where our text ends here this morning. We, we have one more verse. And that is our encouragement that even though most will reject Jesus, even though most are going to look at us as, as an eccentric punchline because of this message, we never, ever lose heart because some will have ears to hear. Verse 34 says, but some men joined Paul, and they had believed, it says. And so in closing this morning, I just want to say that before we share this good news of strange joy to other people, we need to do a couple of things in the days ahead. Number one is, just like Paul did, we need to search for truth that is already apparent in the other person. We might know a person who doesn't yet know Jesus, but, but they're a very generous person, perhaps. Or they have a lot of compassion for, for all those who are poor. Draw on that and direct them to Jesus, and then if they have ears to hear, then their life is really going to explode. Now it's beginning to make sense. This is all because of Jesus. And then lastly, I would say even more importantly, 
is that before we, we share this strange message with the world, we need to take one very long look at that message, us ourselves. Because chances are there will be glimpses and dimensions of a deeper understanding in that verse. Where once again we can smile and we can say to God, God, you are bringing some strange things to my understanding today. And I love you all the more as a result of it. Most people in our country have heard about Jesus, yes. And yet not like the way Paul proclaimed him in the city of Athens. I think it is such an exciting thing in our world that in, in the relationships that we have, most of those people have only been introduced to the Jesus who lives in the stained glass windows. Our responsibility and our joy as sons and daughters of God is to say, oh no, he is so much more than, than, than that. That's not even who he is. And then we get to proclaim a God who is not too far from each one of us. This strange king proclaims this even stranger message of joy.